there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Billie Jean King became the first prominent sportsman to come out when she announced her relationship with Marilyn Barnett. 26-year-old Bobby Sands died as a result of his 66-day hunger strike. SCTV Network 90 debuted on NBC to the delight of a generation of comedy fans, and Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats debuted in London to the delight of a generation of tourists. By far, though, the most important story of the month was the premiere of the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island, perhaps the finest crossover between a basketball team and a sitcom movie of all time. Oh my Even God. so, there were films released <laughs> in May of 1981. Let's talk about them today. Yeah. Oh, dude, it is a, a wild month. It's crazy. It's really crazy. When I sent you this list, your first response was, Drew, That's not. we're not doing the rest of 1981 in one episode. Um, now, before we get going this week, I wanted to uh, once again thank all of you who have taken the time to uh, pledge support on the Patreon page. Um, for those of you who have not yet signed up, you are missing out. Let me tell you, because we have got bonus content that we put up there that I think is really coming together beautifully. Um, we've done two interviews, each one an hour. Uh, you can listen to Nancy Allen talk about her early 80s work. You can listen to Leah Thompson talk about Howard the Duck and Back to the Future. And now we've just put up our first commentary for John Carpenter's The Fog. And we would love for the rest of you to come to www.patreon.com slash 80s all over. Check it out. We'll probably do a bonus episode later uh, of the movie podcast that we recommend because we really do want to share some love. Uh, but but we're really thrilled that that movie geeks have taken to the show so far. And we just want to continue to be great. So let's get started with May of 1981. This is one of the most jam-packed months we've ever had. And I really have no idea why. I don't know what it was about May of 1981, but it was wall to wall. And as a result... There's a little bit of everything. For example, our first movie, which was released on May 1st, uh, is called King of the Mountain. When you're the fastest, someone always wants you to prove it. King of the Mountain, ready PG. This is the very first film ever from Polygram Films, which if you don't know Polygram, you probably have seen the logo in front of at least one movie you love, like American Werewolf in London. It was the first company where John Peters and Peter Goober worked together, and that partnership helped define a huge portion of the rest of the 80s and the 90s. They were huge studio forces, of course. This was a movie that was based on a magazine article about racing, uh, street racing on Mulholland Drive, and... Um, like a lot of their films began that way. Flashdance was that kind of a film where they found a real article about something trendy that was going on and then would turn it into a film that was meant to kind of play off of that trend and capitalize on it. 
I think it's important for two reasons. First, for the Peters Goober, for the beginning of what they did as a uh, production team. And also because this is where the reinvention of Dennis Hopper began. You know, he had been the director of Easy Rider and this huge independent force, and he had burned down that goodwill with the last movie. It's jaw dropping. It is somebody torching their career in front of a camera. And he had basically vanished. His big, big comeback, of course, was, uh, I guess, my science project and then Hoosiers. But he plays like the cautionary tale to the other kids. Yeah, he's uh, the guy who used to be Harry Hamlin, who is now he's the straight racer whose friends are moving on and they're getting other jobs and they're starting to put their lives together. And he doesn't want to. He just wants to race. It's not bad, but it spends a lot of time off the car racing stuff and focused more on their the three friends are trying to break into the music business and then one of them doesn't want to betray his art and the second one is very pragmatic about money and the third kind of plays it's not a bad movie but i mean i can imagine like people who live in la would be fascinated to see this movie just like somebody who lives in new york would be fascinated to see like uh an Abel Ferrara movie from 1981. I'm sure. Honestly, uh, I think the best stuff in it is the first, like uh, just during the opening credits where you're just doing the aerial photography of Mulholland drive. And you're looking at some of the craziest turns and corners and stretches of road. And if you race Mulholland and it happens, there's a lot of people who do that. And it's still something that goes on. You're an asshole. That is a terrifying road. And it's terrifying to be on it when somebody's using it that way. And I think that there is something you could maybe do that would be really like exciting and, and visceral. This isn't that film. This is a pretty conventional down the middle. It's a 1981 Fast and the Furious part one in L.A. It's kind of dull, but I was still kind of into it because I had like never even heard of it until like two weeks ago. That, and that's weird. There's a lot of films from this era that I haven't seen, but an American film that got a major release that I had never heard of was uncommon. Well, saying you'd never heard of that one. I'd never heard of the next one. You're kidding. No, never heard of it. He likes to take you by surprise. He likes to leave a very special calling card. It was the best blood I have ever tasted. He's giving you a very special invitation. You've been invited to the Monster Club. Come. At your parents. This film was produced by a gentleman named Milton Subotsky, who horror fans will, of course, remember as one of the co-founders of a British production company called Amicus. Hammer gets a lot of the press because they were awesome, but Amicus was also great. And one of the things that Amicus was really good at was horror anthologies. And some of the best ones, of course, are Tales from the Crypt. Vault of Horror, and my personal favorite, 1972's Asylum, which is great. After Amicus closed up shop, um, Milton Zuboski went on and to try to produce some, some films on his own without uh, the Amicus shingle. This was one of his efforts. He went back to the anthology well and really kind of half-assed it. The copy I saw of this is startlingly pretty, just in terms of the condition that it's in. It looks like this movie was played once, ever. If you take the three stories that are the focus of the film, two of them are pretty deadly dull. The third one is kind of effectively creepy. The wraparound story. In the Amicus films, the wraparound story was generally some kind of a, a morality tale about, you know, these uh, these people stuck in a chamber and we're now we're going to watch the stories of how they ended up in purgatory and why they deserve to be there, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that generally works, you know, uh, in the Monster Club, the wraparound story is just us visiting a ridiculously ugly 
rock club where really bad music is being played. We get to see the entire oh, song. Oh, the soundtrack for this movie is weird. Atrocious. Uh, the only band that you might recognize from these segments are UB40. But uh, but even then, the music is just terrible, and they show you every single note of every single song. So the wraparound is pretty much painful. Horror fans will, of course, appreciate that Vincent Price and Donald Pleasance and John Carradine do show up. And so that does lend some, you know, old school class and credibility to the stories. But it's a shame. It's because I, I got really excited when I realized I had never seen it because it is an anthology movie, because it's got Vincent Price. It seemed like the kind of thing where, oh, my God, I might be set up here for a really lovely discovery. And like you said, the stories, the individual stories, they're all based on the work of, of uh, R. Chetwin Haynes. And if these are faithful adaptations... There's a reason I don't know him. If they're not, he should sue somebody because they've done terrible damage to his name. Yeah. I mean, I would call the wraparound stuff truly painful, but the, the stories are serviceable, certainly not great. But in the grand scheme of the Amicus style anthology, Monster Club is unfortunately lesser fair. Speaking of lesser fair. <laughs> there's this thing that happens sometimes. Some of these movies, part of the trick in pinning the date down is that they come out different times in different places. This is a 1978 film. That took this long to make it to America. And there's a reason. Even though this thing stars Kim Novak, Marlena Dietrich in her final film appearance, and young David Bowie, it is an awful movie. And it's confusing because I think Bowie could be very good on film. And I think he had an interesting sense of picking collaborators. Uh, if you look at The Man Who Fell to Earth, the film he made before this, it's not just a terrific performance. It's an unbelievable movie that I think Bowie recognized the vision Rogue had and was like, yes, I can do this. He took a lot of chances, uh, David Bowie. Some of them were Nicholas Rogue's Man Who Fell to Earth, and others were, of course, Just a Gigolo. Just a Gigolo. People know the parts I'm playing. I don't get this movie at all, dude. A Bowie apparently hated it, and he called it, quote, all his Elvis movies rolled into one. 100% true. And I think part of it was that they, at some point, had promised him he could work with Marlena Dietrich. And if you're at all interested in Hollywood history, there would be some charge to doing that just once, just to work with her. And none of their scenes are together. I'm fairly sure they were never on set at the same time. If he took the film to work with her, he got screwed. David Bowie stars as a post-World War I veteran who becomes a high-class gigolo. Not exactly sure if it's going for melodrama, but it doesn't have any sort of social commentary, any kind of insight about, you know, returning home from war. and Well, and it's set during the rise of the Nazis, so you're seeing, like, fascism start to fall into place around him, and you would think that a movie... Especially this is when Bowie was working in Berlin and I think he had a connection to the city and, you know, some of his best art came out of this period. Here's this movie where you're talking about literally a guy who's selling himself and who is a sex worker at a moment where fascism is kicking in around him and mores are changing and people are being arrested for what they do and for... There's so much material there. None of it is in this movie. It's a pretty unbelievable how many opportunities they just drive by in, in this thing. Just a gigolo uh, based on the album by David Lee Roth. <laughs> All right. So next up is a horror film. And this is like one kick in the nuts after another at the beginning of the podcast. This week. We haven't even gotten started yet, right? We already covered the Monster Club and now the nesting. Fear visits many places, but this is where it lives. The nesting. It's the terror that hides inside your mind. 
coming soon. The second John Carradine release of the month. It is the final film of Gloria Graham. Beyond that, it might be one of the most boring haunted house movies I've ever seen. And few things are as boring as a boring early 80s movie. There's a kernel to this idea that uh, so many screenwriters have tried to figure this movie out and crack it because there is a really good idea. The agoraphobic in a haunted house. That is a great idea. And yet this is a terrible version of that. It used to be a brothel. So it's a haunted former brothel. This sounds like all kinds of juice. Nope drier than a piece of sandpaper and man i watched a lot of bad horror movies this month and this was if this isn't the worst and i i'm i'm gonna make a case for a different one being the worst it's definitely very very close uh, there's no like heat to it there's no charge to it there's nothing transgressive about it that's a disgrace you know it's a shame because as we'll get to later in this episode you'll see a huge glut of very gory and, and excessively bloody movies and you almost wish that a movie like the nesting would be able to stand out like last year's The Changeling or maybe Ghost Story later this year. But unfortunately, The Nesting came and went. And the only reason I even remember this title is because I always mistook it for The Nest, which is a horror movie from 88 about killer cockroaches. That's exactly the, the same mistake I made. And, uh, and we switch from a very standard haunted house movie to a film based on a country western song. And Drew, we always know how well those go. There were like three or four versions of this movie made in the early 80s, and I think the only one that even worked remotely was Gung Ho. Gung Ho's not a great movie, but this is no Gung Ho. I am talking, of course, about... Take this job and show. I ain't working here no more. This is the comedy about a young man who has it all. Women, money, success and who gambles it all by going back to his hometown, taking over the local brewery, and taking on the establishment. You can take your job and shove it. Robert Hayes, star of Airplane, Barbara Hershey, Martin Mull, and Art Carney is picking. Take this job and shove it. Take this job and shove it. It's horrible that I know that. It's horrible that that song, whether I like it or not, that song is in my head until the day I die. How many films can you name that were based on country western songs? Oh, boy. The Night the Lights Went Down in Georgia? Damn. See, now, if you hadn't gotten any, we probably would have Billy edited. Joe? Oh, to Billy Joe. What else you got? Anybody, anything else? I, I feel okay that I got a couple. No, yo, you should be impressed. That You should be satisfied with that. You forgot Convoy. Oh, yeah, of course. And Harper Valley PTA. At least Harper Valley PTA, there's somewhat of a storyline and some characters that you can kind of hang something on. Shit, they even made a TV show after the movie. This movie. This was Robert Hayes' follow-up to Airplane. And if you walked in, like as me and my friends did, right? Did you walk in expecting that kind of comedy? Because I saw this in the movies with my friends, and we could not have been more bored. Well, and I think that's a real problem because Robert Hayes, you know, they tried really hard to make him happen. This was his, this was that moment where he was going to be either Tom Hanks or Michael Keaton. He was going to be one of those guys that they build a bunch of comedies around. But the problem was Airplane was so driven by the sense of humor of the writers, directors. That's not really Robert Hayes out of Airplane. It's not like he walked around being wacky and hilarious. So casting him, you didn't get that. He didn't bring that with him. It's not like you hired Jim Carrey, where he is the comic force behind those choices. Robert Hayes was just a, a white dude. 
Take This Job and Shove It is about a, uh, a man who returns to his hometown as a corporate suit to oversee the local brewery. So now he's on the bad side. So his his former friends now hate him. But then he finds out that the brewery is up to no good. And now he resides with his old friends and colleagues to fight the evil corporate entity. Is that basically it, Drew? I, I think you actually make the movie sound more coherent and focused than it is. Whole sequences were just designed around like a location that they had or something they thought they could get. If I'm not mistaken, like two months ago, we mentioned the very first test drive of Bigfoot, the monster truck. Almost immediately, Bigfoot, the monster truck was in this film. You know, the guy who directed it, Gus Traconis, is a guy who did a ton of like exploitation Corbin type movies. Uh, He directed the side hackers for Mystery Science Theater fans. And he did a lot of moonshine movies and stuff like that. He legitimately, I think, came to this from a position of he had worked in that world. He had made movies about the country scene before this. I think it's more than anything that Hayes feels like he's completely lost. And considering how clearly this was like we've talked about this, how how exploitation was a thing. I think the song, the David Allen Coe song, is definitely from that school of kind of exploitation. The movie's really not very country or blue collar. And I think it's it's because it's cast wrong. This was a movie with like Jan Michael Vincent and guys like that. I'd at least buy it a little bit more. I wouldn't buy it on Blu-ray for $2.99. How about that? I think that's fair. From there, what do we got next, Drew? Uh, next up is, it's if I'm not mistaken, this is the funniest Canadian movie ever made about false allegations of child abuse. Oh, dude. We're gonna, this is going to be real quick. All right. This is, called, <laughs> this is called Improper Channels. Boop. Done. Alan Arkin, Marriott Hartley. 1981 Canadian comedy about a guy mistakenly accused of child abuse, and then he has to, like, fight against the computer that mistakenly called him a child abuser. It's atrocious. This was on HBO a lot in the uh, in the mid-80s. and It was, and you, and you feel like they spent five bucks for it, and that's why it aired so many times. When you're 10 or 11 and you think a movie is terrible, that says something. Improper Channels, it was about a computer. I would have watched it. I didn't care. I don't think I even finished it as a kid. I don't even. All right. Improper channels. Moving on. It's about a computer. Yeah. Bring it on. You're, you were like me, man. I would watch a movie for any reason. It truly didn't matter. I would pretty much watch anything. And so I had a crush on Marriott Hartley. Find me somebody who even knows who Marriott Hartley is anymore. I had a huge crush on her just from those stupid TV com- uh, Polaroid uh, commercials. All the Polaroid ads. She was omnipresent. This is Polaroid's new Time Zero One Step. Pretty. Why is it black? Oh, you'll know it's the Time Zero One Step. And here's the world's fastest developing color. You see it in seconds now, not minutes. Look at that color. But why a Time Zero one stuff? It comes with a pack of Time Zero Supercolor film and this made-for-each-other pack. Certainly are made for each other. Just like coffee and cream. Rolls and Royce. Or me and you. Try ham and cheese. It, it is a tax shelter Canadian production. And now a Kung Fu action double feature special. Drew, what do you got? One of the films that we kind of wrestled with this week was... Firecracker. See Jillian Kessner, grand prize winner at the Black Belt Olympics. She'll mix seduction with destruction in the screen's first erotic kung fu classic, Firecracker. And when I mentioned this on Twitter, one of the guys that follows us and listens to the podcast got crazy excited because he loves Sirio H. Santiago, who's the director of this movie. Having seen this now, I can tell you why. There's no fat on what he does. What he makes are kung fu movies. He shoots tons of the martial art fighting, gets through the exposition stuff very quickly, very matter of factly. 
it's like a 75 minute movie. It is a ridiculous movie about an underground tournament. Nothing matters in terms of story. You don't watch it for story. You watch it for every four minutes. There's an excuse to break out into about a 10 minute fight scene. And it works really well as that. Killing Kill Again, which is the other half of this double feature, is a quasi sequel to one of the movies we covered at the beginning of this podcast, Killer Be Killed. James Bryan is back in the explosive new martial arts adventure, Kill and Kill Again. Kill and Kill Again. In unarmed combat, they are the ultimate weapon. Kill and Kill Again. The challenge continues. Rated PG. This is also a tournament movie, at least at the beginning. The hero of the film is at a tournament and he gets distracted, almost doesn't make his fight because he stops to help this woman. And then the woman sends him after her father, a missing scientist. And the scientist has made, stay with me, mind control drugs from potatoes and then lures the good guy to his island for a private arena match against his super army weapon guy that he's built. Again, Nonsense and silly and so much fun to watch. These are meat and potatoes, martial arts fight movies for fight fans. And I think as such, they're both pretty entertaining. And I, I, it's a seriously fun double feature with no pretense of being anything else. Beautiful. Moving from that to another pleasant surprise. I kind of had a lot of fun with a really obscure action comedy called High Risk. This is Adios Airlines. We just know you're going to love it down there. The women are willing, and they just love Americans. Because down there is $5 million and a high-risk adventure that never lets you down. Down there. Here we come! High risk. Adios. High risk starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for theaters and showtimes. This is Stuart Raffel at his Stuart Raffelist. Yeah, this is the director who would, in the 80s, would go on to direct... Ice Pirates, Philadelphia Experiment, and the immortally wretched Mac and Me. Yeah, he was a family adventure guy first. Like, he he did Napoleon and Samantha for Disney, and he did The Adventures of Will, the Wilderness Family, and he kind of made his bones doing family adventure stuff. He got offered this job. He got offered a start date. He got offered a budget, and they just said, you got, like, three weeks. Come up with something. And this is what they threw together. Here's the plot. Ready? Four American friends decide they're going to rob a, a South American drug lord. So they fly down and they fucking steal his money. <laughs> and then when they go to their airplane, it's not there and they have to stay alive. Like, imagine that idea now. Oh, let's get four white guys to travel down to uh, South America and, and invade a, a drug cartel. Yeah, good luck with that. Oh, I'm sorry. Three three white guys and a black guy. <laughs> the great Cleavon Little is in this and he's one of the best things in it. The other ones are uh, James Brolin. Uh, Bruce Davison, character actors galore, Lindsay Wagner, of course, the, the uh, bionic woman. And um, if you don't know who Ernest Borgnine and Anthony Quinn and James Coburn are, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Well, and I, I love that James Coburn's on one side of this and Anthony Quinn's on the other side. And you got the guys in the middle just trying to sort of navigate those two. If the studio had made this movie, that would be great. What I what I really enjoyed about it is that it is an independent film at a time when that didn't mean what it does now. It was genuinely just these guys went out and did this thing and and then got it picked up. And there's an energy to it where it feels like Stuart Raffle is probably at the loosest he ever was as a filmmaker here. Just having fun and running and gunning and doing this thing fast. And there is real energy from all the, the cast. 
I'm really surprised this doesn't have a better reputation. If a company like Shout Factory bought High Risk and did a really nice job of putting it together and putting a nice package together, I think this is a movie that, that's due kind of a rediscovery. During the act, big action finale, they choose a really incongruous <laughs> r- r- rock song to play over the big action finale. And I had to like rewind it a few seconds to be like, what? Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, if you can dig up High Risk, it's fun. Check it out. Right from there, we move over to something that is equally obscure. Scott Weinberg knows horror, and he knows his subgenres of horror. And if you're going to know your subgenres, then you've got to know all of them, even the weirdest ones like animal attack horror films. And as animal attack horror films go, Savage Harvest is one of them. Immediately off the success of Alien, here comes Tom Skerritt as the father of a family out in, in the African plains. And uh, there's a horrible drought, so uh, his homestead, is uh, his family and his servants are set upon by a pride of ravenous, hungry lions. Starts out fairly dry, but actually has some really interesting photography and some pretty clever uh, set pieces later on. How they managed to escape from the house is actually pretty darn clever. I certainly can't say that I feel like I didn't get what I thought I was going to get when I saw Savage Harvest. And it's fine, I guess. Uh, It's not scary at all. But it is impossible to watch this film now without thinking of another film. It's weird that the other film vanished and this one's been around. As I've stated numerous times, my maternal grandmother, God bless her soul, she uh, was one of the first people I ever knew to head at HBO. And she would occasionally at certain points put in a blank tape and hit record and go to bed for the night. One day she gave me a videotape with three movies on it. Friday the 13th Part 2. Savage Harvest, and The Boogans. I didn't realize this was on that same tape. Yep. I just found it always bizarre when I looked back that two of them were so freaking obscure. And that, like you said earlier, indicates HBO was was buying some low-hanging fruit back then. I think, And I think that's honestly what it was, was because of cable, we saw certain things over and over and over that we might otherwise never have run into. Now, the other film that you and I are both talking around right now was made in 1981, was made in the same year, but never came out theatrically. This never got a theatrical release, but it is so special, we do need to mention Roar. You are not going to kill those cats. You can tell me what you're going to do, and you can tell me what the rest of this committee is going to do. But I'll be damned if you're going to tell me what I'm going to do. That's why you have to help. I can go on any property to kill animals that I deem are a danger to human life. I'm telling you there'll be no culling of cats, elephants, or any animals ever again. We can't keep exterminating everything that we fear that inconveniences us. Let the zoos keep them alive. Roar is amazing. Roar is the film that this movie wishes it was. Roar is a work of terrorism. Think of the scene in Roar where they first get to the house and they're just being chased around the house, room to room, situation to situation by those lions for what feels like a half an hour, maybe 40 minutes in the middle of the film. Oddly enough, Roar is a fascinating bad film relic. And it is available. It was re-released by Draft House. It is, uh, I believe, available as a DVD from Olive Films. And the irony is, Roar never got a North American theatrical release at all, but has been like celebrated in the last few years as a cult item. Savage Harvest did get a theatrical release, and it's infinitely more obscure than Roar. 
Well, the difference is Savage Harvest looks like it was made by people who did their best to keep their actors safe. Roar is the work of a lunatic, <gasps> just a fucking lunatic who said, um, just get in front of the camera. We'll see what happens. And then stuff happens. Terrible stuff happens all through that movie. <sighs> Roar is traumatic. It is such a crazy theatrical experience. You can't help but look at how safe everything is in Savage Harvest and just realize, look, that's the difference is once in a lifetime, you'll get a movie where somebody makes it and throws caution to the wind and puts something on film that feels dangerous and real. And I would never sanction a production like Roar. But holy shit, I'm happy I have it on Blu-ray. This next film, this is a movie no one's ever seen from a director who is pretty much a household name and was as big a director in the late 70s, early 80s as you could have named. A Robert Blake divorce comedy. Secondhand Hearts. Uh, This is a Hal Hashby film that I had never seen, and there's not many of those. And it's deeply miscalculated. Robert Blake should play weirdos. That's what Robert Blake is. That's what he reads as on screen. That's what he's decent at. Anything else, any other version of Robert Blake, if you're trying to make him sympathetic or likable or an everyman, fuck you, it's not happening. That guy is as unrelatable as a human being can be on screen. And Barbara Harris uh, plays his wife in this, and they literally got married while he was on a drunken bender, and he now just can't get out of the marriage. And when he says he needs to go across the country... She takes the kids and they go with him. And then it's a road trip that really never, ever gets to an ending. It's just a road trip with these people running into eccentric characters. This one defeated me once or twice a month, uh, once or twice an episode, something beats me. And maybe I was just in a, I've watched worse movies than this one, but boy, it just angered me. And I don't like looking at Robert Blake, frankly. I don't enjoy looking at his face. You know what bothers me about this movie? And it, it feels like it's very precious about the Hicks. And it's more like, aren't these people interesting in middle America? Aren't these people that we fly over fascinating? Look at how weird they are. They're so weird. There's something gross about that. And I I feel like there was this Hollywood moment. You know, you guys who are trying to do it very authentically, like Jonathan Demme, and you look at Citizens Band or you look at Melvin and Howard. There's a thing that he did that I think was very honest and real. and, And he was trying to capture that. Spielberg was very good at capturing that. When you see a filmmaker who is above it and feels like they're above it, it really rubs me the wrong way. And that's how Hashby feels in this movie to me. Let's uh, go from one wretched divorce comedy to another. Why don't we? For some reason, at some point in the early 80s, somebody told pop singer Mac Davis that he should be a leading man movie star. Whoever told him that should be smacked in the face. The only thing clever about this movie is the title. Cheaper to keeper. You've seen Mac Davis is the tough quarterback. I love it. And the colors are divine. The international playboy. I thought we'd just grab a couple of tacos and slide by my place for a couple of drinks. The multifaceted entertainer. Quack, 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 quack. Now, join him as he explores new horizons. Hey, mama, what's happening? Mac Davis in Cheaper to Keeper. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspapers for time. This is the big break for Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrod, who they committed some true fucking crimes over the course of this decade. And we're going to be talking about them. They were guys that got turned to for a certain kind of comedy. Trading Places came after this, and I think that's their high watermark. They worked on big movies, but they worked on bad movies. These guys are the credited writers on Twins. These guys are the credited writers on Space Jam. 
these guys have some shit to answer for. And cheaper to keeper is an early indicator of just how much they can phone in a premise. There's dated where it's like, oh, okay, there are uh, mores and social constructs of the early 80s that we certainly don't adhere to anymore. And I can watch art from that era and appreciate or at least give the film a break for its ignorance. And then there's just smarmy. It feels like it's very plastic. I do think there were guys who were starting to find a way to write comedy that had a heart like John Hughes with Mr. Mom. These guys were aiming for that kind of thing. I don't think they're very good at it. Oh, no, this was a very cynical movie. This is a very point and laugh, kind of sniggering, low humor. Most movies that are obscure, we try to champion. And, uh, you know, if you happen to be a fan of this movie, then fine. But this one kind of deserves to, like, fade away into obscurity, I I think. Now, this next one I was really surprised by, and I think you were, too. Yes, this one I thought that I had seen a couple years ago, mistook it for another film. So I'm watching like 20 minutes and I'm like, no, I'm sure I've seen Death Hunt. Johnson didn't do anything I wouldn't do if I was in his boots. If I thought the killing would stop here, I'd let him go. Charles Bronson. You can't stop it. Lee Marlin. Death Hunt, based on the true story of one of the greatest manhunts ever and of two rivals who clash as enemies. But in the end... Triumph. Death Hunt. Rated R. But, like, I watched the first 15 minutes and I went, not only have I not seen Death Hunt, but I am elated that I'm about to order a pizza and finish this movie. (laughs) Peter Hunt directed it, and if I was working on this film, I would have called him Peter Death Hunt every day on the set. Yeah, Peter Hunt, the director of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It is loosely based on an infamous manhunt, but it stars Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson, and it's an adventure that takes place in 1931 in the Yukon Territory. Supporting cast is Andrew Stevens, Carl Weathers, Angie Dickinson, Ed Lauder. This is like a really stripped-down no bullshit version of something like The Revenant. How often do you get to say that you discovered an adventure movie that you just didn't even know existed? I think that when I was growing up, Charles Bronson and James Coburn and those guys just seemed a little too my dad's age for me to get into. So I didn't really get into Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin and all those guys until I was a bit older. But I'm really happy we discovered it. And not just an action movie, but there's this bigger sense of, for for me, something about the outdoors and something about the the manliness and the survival aspect of it that... Yeah, Angie Dickinson almost feels like she was like, somebody just looked around and went, we have literally no women in this movie. We need an interesting woman character. And I saw Angie's at lunch. You want to go grab her? Yeah, let's put her in here. Yeah, she's not in the film much, but boy, she adds uh, some color and spark that the film desperately needs. Uh, The script is by Michael Gray and Mark Victor, who went on to write Poltergeist and become sort of the the keepers of that franchise. And this was early work by them. And honestly, I I think a very lean, smart piece of uh, studio writing. This is one of our picks of the week. If you happen to dig up Death Hunt. Death Hunt is one that if you have a theater near you that does revival screenings and you want to try and wait and see if it ever pops up, it might be worth it because it might be an awesome theatrical. Oh, it's beautifully shot. It really is. I had to put on my jacket while I was watching it. That's how chilly it was. Just kidding. So now we move on from that to a spate. Drew, do five films count as a spate? I think that's actually technically what a spate is. You can't have less than five and have a spate. All right. The next five movies we're about to cover all came out in the same four-week period. And if you're a film critic who wasn't a big fan of this kind of horror film, you probably felt like just inundated with crap. Let's take off the table the idea that slasher movies are worthless or bad automatically. Let's say you approach them like any other film. So as in any genre, what works, what doesn't, and why? 
And I think grouping these five together, you get a real picture of what it felt like to be a horror fan at that moment. Okay, so the first of the five is, of course... The body count continues. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. The day you count on for terror is not over. Friday, the 13th, part two, rated R. Ask a horror fan or a Friday the 13th fan, and just about everyone will put part two up in in the top three. It might be my favorite of the movies. What works about this movie, uh, and Miner's a director, is it's definitely playing off of any knowledge or affection you have for the first film. It's a very quick reaction to that first film, so it's not like they had years and years to overthink it. This is the moment where the series broke for some people. Tom Savini at the time was legendarily upset at the idea that they were going to try and bring Jason back to life. He thought that was absolutely a terrible idea, thought that the first movie, the ending of that is her dream. It wasn't meant to be literal. The kid's not alive. That's what they leaned into. They clearly decided, no, no, Jason is the bad guy, and that's the direction we're going to go. Because of that, I really like this film as the movie about Jason. And I think that this film is very effective. I think it's genuinely creepy through most of it. The kills are brutal in this this film, and you feel them. I, I, I think that's part of what an older generation didn't get about the Friday the 13th movies. It wasn't that we were excited or happy to see the guy get a machete in the face. It was that all bets are off. Not only do we want to get scared and shocked, but you have shown us through this series of grisly kills that anything gruesome or scary or shocking could happen at any moment. And like not not knowing how graphic or how intense the next kill is going to be, that adds to the tension. I do think that with Friday the 13th, it's like you're watching a musical and you're watching the stuff between the musical numbers because that's how you get to the musical numbers. And then the musical numbers are the expression of in musical films, either romance or giant emotion, or you're excited about something you want to explain who you are. In these movies, you get to the kill sequences and the kill sequences, because we were at a moment where gore makeup had become this thing. I think that became the charge. And the charge then is, well, if you're going to do it, You have to be ridiculous and you have to get bigger and crazier and you have to have a different idea each time. So one person gets a spear and one person gets a machete and one person gets a rope trap. And And a lot of film fans uh, would look at it as, oh, they're just trying to one up each other in the gore department. And to me, that's that's partially true. But that's also filmmakers and effects artists trying to one up the last film they saw. Sure. And that's the fun of it. And that is part of the fun of what you're watching is how outrageous can they be? You know, for me, one of the reasons that Jason X was such a lovely return to things and, and made me so happy when I saw it was there was a sense in a few of the kills that they understood how funny and ridiculous Friday the 13th movies were as a theatrical experience that was shared. And that scene where he picks up the sleeping bag and starts beating it against the tree is hilarious and if you're not laughing then it's fine these weren't for you and you'll never understand what the appeal was but there was an appeal and it's not because we're sick it's because there is something funny about that structure and that payoff friday 2 still gets me i think it has some of the most creative yes nastiest kills and uh it has a good sense of atmosphere i think it's creepy If you want to talk about your favorite Jasons, Baghead Jason is pretty cool. There's something about him that I think is effective. And I I actually like the idea that 
they would continue changing his look from film to film as he just picked things up and used them. I wish they hadn't just stopped on the hockey mask. I get why they did. It's iconic and it's memorable and and it just became the thing. But it would have been lovely if like film after film, Jason just kept kind of evolving. Right, and, right. And by like part seven, he looks like Chet from Weird Science. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I got. I also got to give it bonus points for Amy Steele because uh, I love Amy Steele and she was great. She worked a lot. And she was in a lot of stuff I liked. And she always, I thought, came across as a very real person, even in the lamest of the movies that she appeared in. She was very good. Charming, very likable uh, girl next door kind of attitude. Absolutely love Amy Steele. From there, we move on to a similar, very similar horror film to Friday the 13th. And I'm sure it's completely coincidental. I'm sure it was a complete accident that there is any resemblance at all between Friday the 13th and The Burning. This summer, if you're planning to go camping, don't. If you're looking forward to midnight swims, don't. Sneak on back to the campsite. Get some matches. And if you're thinking about being with someone where no one can see you, don't. Because this summer, a legend of terror isn't just a campfire story anymore. What happened one summer five years ago is about to happen again. And again. And again. Burning. Co-written by Harvey Weinstein. Yep, and Bob Weinstein. And um, and it is very much a if you want to look at the DNA of Dimension films and Weinstein films and everything they've done. Uh also Brad Gray, uh the Paramount executive, uh was a big part of this. That just struck me. This is the first Miramax film later this month, and we'll talk about it, but the first film produced by New Line. They both came out the same month. That's pretty amazing. That's a pretty big month. And nice to welcome you both to the party because this is it. This is ground zero for both of them. But and it's interesting that Miramax and New Line can thank most of their birth directly to slasher movies. The Burning, I'm going to take a lot of umbrage here from my fellow horror freaks. It's not very good. Tom Savini's gore effects are unreal. Virtually everything else is pretty dire. It's effective in a blunt force trauma kind of way. The movie works on the sheer energy of getting from gag to gag. The thing that it has going for it is it's pretty fucking mean. It is a very mean spirited slasher movie, which in a way I kind of like because, you know, when you don't have your normal uh, moral compass, then, you know, that can lead to more shocks and unexpected. It's not it's not throwing like elbows to the ribs and going, we're just kidding. Wink, wink. It's all fine. The burning is fucking mean. Uh, a bunch of idiots at a summer camp get slashed up for something stupid they did. Who's who's the monster in this movie? Cropsy. Cropsy. Yeah, Cropsy. I think his I think his full name is Cropsier Circle. Crop Circle. Cropsierkle. I'm quitting. I'm, you I'm quit quitting. All you I'm want. Quitting. The bottom line is what you what what people love about the burning <laughs> could probably be dug up and watched on YouTube. It has some really vicious, fascinating, well well presented gore moments, especially a bit that happens out on the on a lake. But characters are not interesting. The screenplay is not funny or fun. It's tiresome. When they set out to make this film, 
this was very calculated in terms of what Bob Weinstein and Harvey Weinstein wanted to accomplish here. They wanted to get Miramax Films up and running. They wanted to have their own company. So they looked at films that were making money at that moment, and there was no doubt that what they did was they broke down a formula here, and they said every 10 pages, somebody's got to get murdered horribly. And if you look at the movie, it's mechanical in terms of the way it drops murders in. It is on the dot. Uh, the director of the film, Tony Malum, was a guy who did a lot of documentary stuff. And I think that kind of helps because the film has this very loose running gun quality to it, even with the gore effects. So it all feels kind of real. And he sells it by shooting it like that. From there, we go straight to six of the most bizarre murders you'll ever see, except that's only in the poster, not really in the movie. And we'll get to that in a minute. The film is Happy Birthday to me. Someone's having a party for the top 10, the senior class snobs. Before they get to celebrate, six of them will die. It is up to you to determine whether you wish to subject yourself to fear, terror, and shock. Because of the bizarre nature of this birthday party, pray you're not invited. What a weird movie, man. Yeah, dude. <laughs> this is the weirdest movie out of this this group of slasher films this time. It's fucking strange, start to finish. It is strange in terms of the way it's structured. It's strange in terms of what the payoff is. And it is strange in terms of how long it takes to become the movie that it's trying to be. Yeah, uh, it's about a girl who returns to her fancy prep school, hang out with her fancy friends after some kind of mysterious brain surgery and family tragedy. And then, of course... Uh, it has something to do with a, a birthday party from many years ago where something shameful took place and now a bunch of people are getting killed. All right, now, Drew, we covered this before where a lot of these movies are like, the producers were like, well, make something that's kind of like an Agatha Christie mi murder mystery. But I'm baffled by the way this is built because it is built around this mystery. Something happened and she is now trying to incorporate herself back into these people's lives and little by little, her memory starts coming back, which that's a familiar structure and I've seen lots of films that are structured like that. That's not the weird part of it. The weird part is how everything that is being played as this is what's happening right now is like, hey, we're kind of an animal house and we're hanging out at the college and it's all pretty cool. And we're just like cool kids and we're hanging out together. And then the stuff that they are flashing that she's flashing back to and the memories that are coming together are out of a Douglas Cirque film. And they are super lurid and they're played at this totally different pitch than the stuff. The director Jay Lee Thompson, who did Cape Fear, but also did several uh, in his waning years, did a lot of real junk. It's exhausting the way this thing is cut. So when it finally does in the last third kick in and, ex and start explaining everything, because they spend a lot of time, first of all, on are they being killed? Maybe they're not. If you want to see a twist ending that I guarantee you a million dollars was not in the script, go watch Happy Birthday to me. <laughs> I think it's the whole point. I think it's everything that, that the thing is building to. But even then, even once they start to pay it off, they try to twist it like three more times. It doesn't fit. It's like an annex on your house, but your house is white and your this annex is like rainbow colored and made of whipped cream. And it's so big. Here's the first twist. And now here's another twist. And here's another twist on top of that. Calm down. Just kill somebody. One of the reasons this film was so infamous, the poster for this movie, while not accurate to the film itself. The poster was awesome. 
I love the poster. I, my friend Jed Strom, when he had his, his collection of horror movie posters, that one was front and center for good reason. Not only did each movie tell the, the next slasher producer, you have to up the ante with kills, but this poster is also like touting that you're going to see six kill murders you've never seen before. And like, I'm not going to spoil what they are except for the shish kebab, but they're not that creative. <laughs> I agree with you. And I think that that poster was something that horror fans were so used to seeing and loved so much that even if the movie wasn't beloved, it kind of became beloved because that poster was so great to see on a shelf. And I think the poster is just as influential as an independent thing separate from the film. And then that we move on to Paramount again, and they have what looks to be a fairly standard melodrama thriller about a woman being stalked by a, a fan. But like at certain points in this movie, it just becomes really brutally ugly. Dear Miss Ross, I am your greatest fan. I have all the necessary equipment to make you very, very happy. Am I safe, Inspector? Who knows? He's after me now, isn't he? The Fan Rated R. Who's younger in this? Is it Michael Bean or Dana Delaney? The most fun thing about this movie is like, did you catch who was the uh, the production assistant he kills in the pool? It was um, uh, Griffin Dunn. And when he shows up the first time and he's snotty to him, it's it's a total Griffin Dunn. I'm like, wait a minute. Griffin Dunn was in American World in London this year. Why does he have one line in this horrible movie? Oh, I think he was still. Yeah, he was absolutely still trying to get himself set up as an actor. Uh, Laura Bacall plays a, uh, a legendary stage actor who is about to start on a big new musical. Uh, and we get little snippets of the, some of the musical numbers, which are laughably bad. Uh, Michael Bean is uh, single-mindedly obsessed with her. He harasses her assistant, played by Maureen Stapleton. First, it's just letters like, ooh, I really want to do it to you. And then it just gets to be really mean and aggressive. Uh, and then it just he kills people in her circle. James Garner is her ex-husband. And it's just so perfunctory. What's really weird about the cast is it's like Paramount said, well, look, we got to make slasher films for their grandparents, too. Because the movie is Lauren Bacall's movie. She's meant to be the lead. She's meant to be the one that we're essentially sympathizing with all the way through, with Michael Bean carrying the other half of that. And Bean is dedicated, and he's greasy, and he's a nasty little Oh, thing. no, yeah, no. If you were going to just judge him on, oh, uh, how's his performance as a really disturbing psycho, it's a good performance. Uh, what, what I don't like about these studio-mandated uh, uh, slasher movies is that they have these pretensions of class and quality. And and I'll tell you right now, of all the horror movies that we've covered this month or this year, I don't think any of them, indie or studio, has a scene as reprehensible as the one in The Fan that has nothing to do with the plot whatsoever, in which our killer goes out cruising some gay guy, gets him in an alley, there's implied oral sex. Can I point out that not only is it implied oral sex, but Michael Bean really takes his time before he kills that guy. It goes on for an uncomfortable amount of time. It, the way that scene is directed, they really... It's like he picks the knife up, sets it down again, moves it. There's a lot about this movie. I, I have a real thing in films. I have a real sore spot in movies where they have a production number and you're supposed to be a, it's a musical that somebody's going to be performing and when you do see the final version of the production number she does an opening night the scene in that musical no one would 
ever pay money to see that musical that that scene is from no one who the fuck is the audience for this thing and it goes on forever they do the whole musical number and they stage it basically in a room that's the size of my living room it's not a big theater if this is her giant new career that she's about to launch she is fucked because this is a joke and the older i get i hate to say it but the more i kind of can relate to the uh, older critics when i was younger who just said this was just basically mean-spirited and venal yeah. and ugly. For the oh, they're sake of really ugly. mean to Maureen Stapleton. And I felt like just saying, stop that. Leave her alone. We'll never become snobs about horror. But I, I'm starting to realize that when I was younger, some of the horror, some of the criticisms were very valid. Now, we're moving into this last one. This is, in my opinion, the worst film of any genre that we have done so far on this show. You're kidding. I think this might be the one. This is the worst film we've covered on 80s all over so far. This might be for me. This is the one. I hate this fucking movie. I hate that I watched this whole fucking movie. Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you Drew McWeeny's Graduation Day. There are 200 seniors at Midvale High and seven days till graduation. <laughs> the class of 81's having the time of their life. Graduation Day, rated R. Now showing it at Theodore Drive in near you. Oh my God. It's the worst. It really is. I hated everything. I hated how bad it looked. If you want to talk about a movie where the gore is as how fast. Hey, Bob, is there going to be gore in the movie? I don't know. Well, can you put some in the movie? I don't know. Do you have some blood? I don't know. It, it soon we'll be covering a, uh, a broad farce that I kind of like called Student Bodies. And I'm starting to think that like uh, graduation day might have been the template for that satire. It's zero it, hour to student bodies. Yeah. All four of the other movies that we've talked about in this in this rundown, infinitely superior in craft to graduation day. We, we talked about this earlier and I said, Drew, do you think it's it's better or worse than Eyes of a Stranger? And what did you say? I think Eyes of a Stranger, even though it's it's reprehensible morally, Eyes of a Stranger still somewhat is a movie. And there's there's scenes in it that are directed with a certain amount of glee upsettingly but not nothing in graduation day i don't even know why the director of this movie would have made this movie there's no indication that he in any way feels any rapport for the genre for actors for shooting a sequence this gentleman would go on to direct tomboy in 1985 so we can look forward to that no so graduation day is about a really angry coach his, his name is red herring his daughter returns from the military and then a bunch of kills, a murder start taking place and they introduce a whole bunch of characters. So you're not sure which one it is. And the opening of the movie is she's the, the girl. It starts with a very confusing shot of what I thought were two teenage boys making out. That goes on for a few minutes and then it cuts to a, a race and there's a girl in the race. and You go, oh, OK, I think that's who that was in the opening. And she's in the race and everybody's yelling at her to win and the coaches are you have to win and then she gets across the finish line and collapses and dies evidently her heart explodes or something and everybody's very upset with the coach because he was so mean to her the reason then the killings start to happen and the explanation once the killer is finally unmasked and reveals his plan when he uh he monologues this really is like the bottom of the barrel. If Mystery Science Theater were to tackle 80s slasher movies, then this would be on. I, this would beat them. This movie is almost too much to take. All right. Uh, Christopher George, a, a stalwart veteran of many 80s films. Christopher George, uh, I would say that his overtly over the top mean performance is kind of entertaining. Uh, you can keep your eyeballs peeled for small performances from Linnea Quigley and Vanna White, of all people. 
But for the most part, I mean, I am an apologist, but graduation day? I don't know, man. So I would say of those five, I really kind of like Friday the 13th Part 2. It stands out to me as one of the better of that series. And the burning has got, like you said, some good kills. But otherwise, it was a rough month to be into that kind yeah, of when film. When you see Siskel and Ebert or other film critics, wherever your local print critic was, and they have like this chip on their shoulder about horror movies. On one hand, you're like, all right, well, you shouldn't do that. You know, every movie is its own thing. But on the other hand, if you had to see these five movies in one month, after that month of, of those five movies, you'd be like, you know what? Screw these awful slasher movies. And maybe that's what film critics of the day were responding to of this, this glut. All right. So uh, shifting gears now away from um, horror and specifically the slasher films. I like that we grouped all those together. I want to talk about what was a pretty huge genre re- release for the month. And it's weird because looking at this lineup, it's not really what a summer movie season would kick off with. There were some big movies, but they were weird big movies. And you get the feeling that all the big guns were held until the actual summer kicked in. So um, for a genre fan like me who had been starved all year long for like a big science fiction movie or a big event movie, I was very excited about the release of Outland. The workers at this mining town on the second moon of Jupiter are dying, and the new marshal wants to know why. How do you know it was a suicide? There's no other explanation. They wrapped them up and jettisoned the body halfway to the station. Even in space, the ultimate enemy is still man. Outland. All I had to do was say to my dad, Sean Connery, it's based on high noon and it's in outer space. That was the easiest sell. And so he took me to see it. A big giant R rated release. I had before the movie even came out. I had the Jim Steranko comic adaptation, which heavy metal put out as a glossy soft paperback. Uh, Richard J. Anobile did the photo novel adaptation of Outland, which was a gi- big giant um paperback as well and so i had both of those before the film even came out i like a lot of it i think it's got some weird choices it makes too the uh the bad guys in the film they are the worst shots of all time and even within the western genre and western bad guys that's a pretty big tradition and these guys are terrible shots well what i like a lot of i like outland a lot and and again yeah it's it's definitely got its issues here and there it does have some slow spots oh for the most part but connery to me is so fun in, in this kind of Western uh, sci-fi story that I can forgive the slow spots. I also love the supporting cast. There's a lot to say. Oh, Peter Boyle's one. great. Peter Boyle's a great piece of shit. Always been a big fan of Peter Hyams. Even before I knew his name, I mean, in the 80s alone, he did Star Chamber. He did 2010. He did Running Scared, Presidio. Uh, but he still works today. He's one of the only directors I can think of contemporary who is his own DP. Uh, his sons are also good filmmakers, but uh, I think Outland is one of Peter Hyam's most interesting movies. It is, as Drew mentioned, high noon in outer space. He discovers some deep malfeasance going on at his space station, and he uh, tells the wrong people. And uh, then there is a countdown to the villains showing up on his space station, and he has to recruit assistance uh, wherever he can. Um, and one of his only uh, allies is Francis Sternhagen, and I'm not kidding. As good as Sean Connery and Peter Boyle are in this movie, somebody had said, oh, by the way, did you remember that Francis Sternhagen was actually nominated for Outland? I would not be surprised. That's how great she is in this movie. You know, the movie was actually nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound. No, Um, no, no. But I was saying that Francis Sternhagen's performance, last time I saw Outland, I was so 
taken with how committed and how interesting her character is. I think I think it's very much in the tradition of the late 70s science fiction films. I think it has this great anti-corporate message. Um, Connery's character, he's new to the um, Jupiter IO station where he's working. And, it, you know, it's a mining station. And when he's brought in, there's this great early meeting where Peter Boyle sits him down and kind of gives him the lay of the land. And what he basically is saying to him is these people work really hard. They work nonstop when they have time off and they want to play. If they get a little fucking rough about it and if they get a little bit high and it's a little bit crazy, look the other way. Don't be a dick about it. All right. And there is a sense that that's that's okay. That's that I can see that agreement working. And it's just that Boyle has this much bigger, slimier thing that's happening. And right. It gets into drug abuse and, and the way that they're abusing each other. But I like that early frontier stuff at the beginning, and it feels to me like a real frontier. Like, I think when we start actually mining asteroids and when we start mining other planets and when we start doing this and when we get off of Earth, this is what frontiers are going to look like. They're going to be very blue collar. They're going to be very matter of fact. This thing is all function. It You know, these look like this is what it might look like in 30 years. It's not glossy and shiny. It does look like, you know, the inside of a truck tractor trailer. But uh, Outland, I definitely recommend. I, 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 I like it very much. This was also a film that was a milestone because the 70 millimeter release of it was done in what Warner Brothers was calling Mega Sound, which was supposed to be their first big, um, holy shit, digital sound experience. At that point, everybody was racing like Dolby Sound was trying to break the six and eight track frontiers. They were trying to do different setups. And so Mega Sound was Warner Brothers. They paid for four movies to be released like this. This was one of them. It is a movie that is incredibly dense as a uh, sort of immersive experience. And I think in a, in a lot of ways, it's a really interesting precursor to Blade Runner because what works best about Outland is the same thing that works so, so well in Blade Runner. You really feel like that environment is an environment. I think when it's working, Outland does a terrific job of making it feel like this is a real place where people are working and living and this thing is happening on and around it. And it's just very grounded and and believable. I don't want to put you on the spot, Drew, but do you remember if it did well? I don't. And I feel like it's one of those movies I remember being super excited about. And by the end of the summer, no one was talking about it. Nobody at my school saw it. None of my friends saw it. It wasn't a movie that I think caught fire. I have a fondness for Peter Hyams. I think the movies of his that I like a lot, I really, really like. And I wish he was that filmmaker every time out. Our next film, Drew, let's spend some time talking about Gary Sherman's fantastic Dead and Buried. From the creators of Alien, terror brought down to Earth, dead and buried. Is there any way whatsoever to reanimate people after they have died? Dead and buried. It will take your breath away. Very people. All of it. Dead and buried. Rated R. Gary Sherman is a guy that I'm excited that we get to talk about on this podcast because I don't think he has the body of work to really support him being treated as part of the pantheon. But I think he had all sorts of great ideas as a filmmaker. I think he was really effective a few times, and I think he was always trying. Even in his worst movies, I see Gary Sherman as a guy who came to play and who really thought about the genre, thought about what was in front of the camera, thought about what he was doing to an audience at his best. 
He was as good as anybody working in the early 80s. Uh, yeah, for a little history, uh, Gary Sherman directed a great horror film in uh, UK uh, called Raw Meat. The last thing he did before Dead and Buried in 81, uh, after this, he would do Vice Squad in 82, and then in 88, he would pop back up with Poltergeist 3. Dead and Buried is one of the best horror films of the decade. I think it's certainly one of the most interesting. I think it is ambitious. I think it is original. I think it does its own thing. And I think it is of a subcategory of horror that I have a huge fondness for. Creepy Towns. I think the creepy town is so good in this movie. Like you, uh, when I watch these movies, whether I've seen them or not, I jot down notes either on my computer or on actual paper. Uh, and here's what I wrote. It's a great gory horror combined with moody noir mystery EC comic vibe. Odd sense of humor. Moves really fast. The thing that I think is so great about Dead and Buried is that it is... You want to talk about a, a movie where the structure is unusual. This is a very odd movie. It's built very weird. The way the horror scenes happen, they're not even really conventional horror scenes. One of the most terrifying things that happens is a, a flash keeps going off. That whole that whole sequence about there's a guy on the beach and he's photographing a woman he just met. And I don't even want to spoil the shock in this scene, even though it's the opening scene. Who's that actress, by the way? That is Lisa Blount. She's the best. There's also the lovely Melody Anderson uh, plays the wife of James Farantino, the sheriff who is delving into a series of mysterious murders. Best in, work uh, James Farantino's ever done. Ever done. Uh, best movie he's ever been in. Well, maybe not. I would, I would say so. And I think he's great in it. Great supporting performance by Jack Albertson from, from, from <laughs> Willy Jack Wonka. Jack Albertson's awesome. As, a, as an undertaker who is probably up to no good, but we're not exactly sure how not good. Once you get into the plot... The last half of this movie moves like a shot. I am not kidding when I say, if I ever meet Farentino, I just want to talk to him about the last 15 minutes of this film. His work is so great, and he nails it. The fun part about Dead and Buried is that it is not generally discussed very much, but among horror fans who've seen it and know the 80s, this is a very well-regarded little film, and I, I hope that we are able to turn some people on to Dead and Buried. Uh, our plot synopsis on this one was a little bit light because... Well, A, there's not a lot of plot to it, and that's to its credit. And B, even divulging much of the characters and much of the plot would be giving up some of the discovery. Rude. And Very rude. It's a movie that you should watch as cold as you can if you haven't seen it before. Exactly. And, and uh, scripted by Ron Shusett and Dan O'Bannon coming off of Alien. Although O'Bannon later said that basically the only way this was getting made if they both had their names on it because of Alien and that it was Shusett. That was the real creative force on, on this one. And Shusset, who it was his story. And really, he was the one that kept pushing to get it made. O'Bannon said it was basically for him just, all right, fine. I'll put my name on it, too, and we'll get it made for you. He he was very open about the fact that he said it was Shusset's movie. And that's great because it is definitely a writer's movie. There is a such a sense of pleasure to the way this script is built. And you get the sense that Gary Sherman understood immediately what an opportunity that was, and exactly how to nail the big moments. One of my favorite things about it, I think I said this this morning, there are whole sequences of this movie where it feels like he had a game going with his director of photography to see how few lights they could use and still get something on camera. There's not like one superfluous scene in this movie. It's, it's very efficient. I, I, I don't want to even talk about it anymore. I want, I want people to see Dead and Buried and get back to us later. We're going to move on now to a movie that... This is the first film that New Line actually produced. Before this, New Line was releasing movies. These guys, the reason they are who they are is because when they were making their bones, when they first had their, their breaks into the business, they had a, a real 
genius about the way they approach these things. The wine scenes were very shrewd with the burning. There's nothing accidental about that movie coming out and making the money that it did and doing well. They knew what they were selling. The same is true of New Line. New Line, up until then, they were known for like midnight movies and they released stuff that they picked up that had been independent first. So they had a huge hit with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre after it had already been out originally. And then a filmmaker who they helped break nationally, who then became part of their identity early on, was John Waters. Robert Shea saw Pink Flamingos, realized people will talk about this thing. This will have a legend that will follow it around. I can make money on this. And this was the first film where he put money into it and said, John, we support you. We believe in you as a filmmaker. Go make your biggest movie. And this was the jump for Waters from the fringe to the mainstream. And it's reflected in the filmmaking. It is a far more accessible movie than anything he had made up to this point. I am speaking, of course, about polyester. But I don't even know your name. It's Todd, honey. Todd? Todd tomorrow? I got a date with an angel. (laughs) Read my lips. I love you. I love you too. My darling. Then let's make love, you sweet little thing. French Provincial. Yes, Polyester is my favorite John Waters movie. His 70s movies, I think those are kind of you-had-to-be-there kind of movies. Uh, And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like, if you were a fan of his vibe in the 70s and you gravitated towards those movies, they really spoke to you at that point. They're very punk rock. They're very underground. They are of the moment, yeah. And they felt like a provocation, like almost like a test. John Waters used a lot of his other features to like push an envelope this way. Okay, now I know how far I can push that. Now, uh, the second film, let me see how far I can push an envelope that way. Okay, now I know. And with Polyester, it seems like is perfect distillation of like his indie sensibilities, the lessons he learned on his more extreme movies, but it was also still very John Waters. This is not watered down John Waters. But to me, Polyester is most his his most interesting movie where it has the the soul of the indie crazy, dark, weird, but he's also just a bit more behaved because he wants to appeal to a slightly more mainstream audience. And here's where I think there's a, a real sort of genius to this movie is making the jump from being a distributor to being a production company that also distributes your own movies. Robert Shea knew that he was it was a bigger gamble. He was taking a risk here and he was having to, you know, see if he could pull something off. You look at guys like William Castle, you look at guys like Roger Corman, you look at how they made it work as independent producers over time. And I think Robert Shea took lessons from that. What John Waters took in looking at uh, guys like William Castle, he saw the genius of being a shameless huckster, of having a gimmick, of having something like that in your movie. And the idea of creating odorama, where you hand out the cards and you scratch and sniff when the number shows up on screen, you don't let John Waters determine what scents are going to be on that card. He made that card foul. There were scenes where they asked you to scratch and sniff. And if you did it, oh, no, no good at all. And that's it's hilarious. Uh, one thing I discovered upon revisiting the movie a few weeks ago is that, you know how you and I have like we've bemoaned these divorce dramas and angst laden, like really belabored divorce comedies. And it almost seems like 
he's mocking those movies with polyester. Like, there's a lot in there he's making fun of. He's also making fun of, like, soap operas and, and you know, there's a lot of social satire in polyester. But he seems like he's watched movies like Middle Age Crazy and Serial and went, oh, my God, you're you're doing it wrong. And I think he's also reacting to, like, the Lana Turner stuff, the imitation of life stuff and the Douglas Sirk movies, the women's movies where they are dissatisfied and the younger man comes into town and, and helps them figure out what's wrong with their lives. And they realize that they are better and more empowered than they've been allowed to be. And there's a whole school of film that they're doing here. And I love that Divine is playing that character. If it wasn't intentional, then it just seems like uh, maybe that makes polyester even more impressive that it was just like it came out at the tail end of all these, oh, poor us white people divorce farces. Oh, I think Francine Fishpaw, I think she's so great. I love the scene where Edith Massey takes her to the motel where her husband's having the affair with Mink Stoll and they break in and Mink Stoll and her husband are so horrible to her. Oh, and they're gross. And uh, we should talk a bit about Tab Hunter and kudos to him for, man, this is a former, you know, he was a sex symbol. He jumped into this with both feet. And he's written about this. And I, I think it's I, it's one of the reasons polyester is going to exist is something that, that people look at larger than just John Waters' career is Tab Hunter, uh, being a gay man working in Hollywood when he was and, and when he was making the studio movies, there was so much control that was exerted over his his image and who he was allowed to be in public and who he who he was allowed to date and and how he handled that public image. And I, you know, I think Tab Hunter navigated it pretty well, but I think it was really hard on him. And I've got to imagine when you're offered something like polyester and you're a guy like Tab Hunter and you see suddenly here's this guy who's making fun of stuff that I've actually done. I've really played these characters in these movies in Hollywood. And not only is he demolishing it, but in doing so, I'll demolish myself. I'll demolish that image that exists. It, how liberating. If it wasn't for uh, John Waters and Paul Bartel, I wouldn't know who Tab Hunter is. To me, he'd be like just some vague 50s actor. And he's so good in polyester. Well, he sells the stuff with Divine that when they when he and Francine Fishpaw fall in love and and he's romancing her. And yeah, it's all a scam. But Hunter sells the the version that is in love with her. And Divine is not doing it as a drag role. Divine is doing it as a woman. And it is a beautiful, nuanced, hilarious piece of comedy work that is gigantic. I think our generation owes a lot to John Waters for even if you don't like his films, for just normalizing things that were considered strange or unacceptable. You know what I mean? Like our generation learned a lot about uh, how to accept gay people, how to accept transgender people, how to accept people who are different or strange or not like us. We we learned a lot of that from filmmakers like John Waters. Uh, not only do I think John Waters is important, but I, I think that John Waters is the he is the velvet underground of film. His movies may not have made a billion dollars, but his movies were seen by everybody who has made films in the 80s and 90s and absorbed and I, he is in the dna of an entire school of comedy there is an arch quality it's not camp and i've seen people use that word wrong all the time but there's an archness it's intentional and it's big and it is the choice of that pitch and of everything else that i think has then rippled through so much of what comedy is now and Waters was there first, man. It's just plain old freaking funny. Uh, and you want to go from something that's hilarious on purpose to something that's hilarious by accident. Now we move to an infamously poorly received, globally detested. Is that fair, Drew? I would say universally. Universally, globally detested adaptation of a widely adored character. I am talking, of course, of 
the legendary Clinton Spillsbury in The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Although his reputation was legendary, his identity remained a secret. For he rode to fame on a white stallion with his trusted Indian friend. And a black mask across his face. I want you to take me to Cavendish. Now, the truth is told and the mask is lifted in The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Rated PG. This was one of the first times that we were seeing sort of the actor who owned a certain version of that character earlier getting pissy because somebody else was going to play it. The new producers wanted to stop the old actor, Clayton Moore, from doing promotional appearances in the Lone Ranger mask because they now own the rights to the character. They successfully sued him to stop him from playing the character in public, but in doing that caused an immensely angry backlash against the producers and, by association, this film because they were basically seen as picking on an old man. And that certainly did not help the film when it came out. This was a case where the Lone Ranger, and I think this continues to be true, certainly we've seen Gore Verbinski crash on the same rocks now, the Lone Ranger is a very difficult character to update. Part of the problem is they don't really want to do the Lone Ranger. Because if you're going to do the character the way it was originally written, if you're going to do the the version that has Tonto, who was a Texas Ranger, who survived a massacre, if you're going to try and use a version that has already existed and build on that, you're going to run into problems. There's a lot about it that is very, very problematic now. Interestingly enough, Tonto, who is obviously infamously and poorly, in my opinion, played by Johnny Depp in the recent Lone Ranger, played by Michael Horace, character actor that definitely know by face, if not by name. Michael Horace is one of the best things in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he's good, but there's so many strange choices in terms of how they approach the writing of this film. And I, I think that's a big problem is the Lone Ranger should be fun. How long until he puts the mask on? How long? I don't know, 98 minutes. It's like just front loaded with origin story, which is okay. Oh, it goes on for ever. Laszlo Kovacs shot this, so it looks nice. It does. Well, look, William Fraker, the guy who directed it, is a fucking fantastic director of photographer. And John Barry wrote the score, not one of his best, but John Barry couldn't write a bad score if he tried. So there are components in this movie, but then there's Christopher Lloyd as the bad guy, completely sleepwalking. And miscast. It's it's they don't know what to do with him as a Jason bad guy. Robards as Ulysses S. Grant. Sounds like fun. Nope. Richard Farnsworth, Wild Bill Hickok. One scene. I don't think there is anything in this that would indicate that Fraker has any particular uh, love of or feel for Westerns. And it's not like he had built his reputation shooting Westerns. He shot a couple, but fucking paint your wagon was his biggest western title and that's not a western that western fans are going to break out as something that they adore and revere it's just a weird choice in general and i think that by this point westerns have been so done to death that unless you had a really smart way in there was re no real reason to do it and nobody was asking for it when this opened i remember no one talked about it I knew the Lone Ranger vaguely from television, but I wasn't, that didn't interest me in a movie theater. I'd seen Star Wars. Why would I want to see the legend of Lone Ranger? My parents had no interest in it because it wasn't the Lone Ranger they knew. And because that bad publicity had happened where it looked like they were kind of beating up on the old one. So the only people that would have cared were turned off by it. And the people who didn't care at all were never given a reason to care. Clinton Spillsbury is so terrible in the movie. James Keach ended up dubbing his entire performance. It's not like there is anything about the performance that Keach gives vocally that saves this or pulls it out. 
it's anchored to a, a terrible visual performance and there was really nothing anybody was going to be able to do to salvage it. And that's that's embarrassing. Like when you are given the, the central role in a movie like this where you are playing an icon and it's not even your voice in the final performance, it's kind of devastating the career. I think that was it for Clinton Spilsbury. I, I kind of feel for the guy, but by all accounts, Clinton Spilsbury was a prick. <laughs> Lone Ranger might be one of the biggest flops to ever uh, produce action figures. Do you remember the Legend of Lone Ranger action figures? Jim? I do. I remember them from um, flea markets where they would frequently show up. And what really bothers me about it, more than it just being a bad Western, it's just that the producers, they, they spent way more than they needed to. They made it such a big, monumental bomb that it virtually killed Westerns until Silverado in 85. Yeah, and justifiably. I think it was bad enough that it really didn't make the case for why anybody would want Westerns. I remember there being a real sense of anger um, from my dad about how haphazard it was because he loved Westerns and he even realized this was not doing anybody any favors in terms of getting more more than made. All right. So uh, speaking of my dad and speaking of my parents, uh, they were just here in town over spring break. And so I was watching movies on and off for this episode. I was trying to you know watch them when they weren't awake because I can't picture my parents sitting through like graduation day or polyester. But I asked them if they wanted to watch our next film. Is this the fun part? Are we having fun yet? Through winter. <laughs> spring. <laughs> summer. Oh my God, the boat's moving. You go ahead, folks. I'll catch up. And fall. I wonder what other people do on their vacations. Somehow, they survive it all. Alan Alda, Carol Burnett, Len Cario, Sandy Dennis, Rita Moreno, Bess Armstrong, and Jack Weston. Friendship is like the seasons. The Four Seasons, written and directed by Alan Alda. Uh, this was huge. This was a big hit. And it's so weird, like how you digest media back then. And I remember the knock on this movie and on Alan Alda in general was that he was kind of a wimpy man, kind of a there was there was this kind of man that he represented. And and I remember reading some of that, like reading that reaction that Alda was in some way redefining masculinity with these right, movies. The, the sensitive man was a new thing. And Alan Alda was the poster child. Right. And I look at it now. Um, what the everybody lost their fucking minds over nothing because this is not like a, a particularly weepy or particularly melodramatic. It's for the most part, it's a kind of a broad comedy that's grounded with some real anger and some real emotion between the couples. And it's fine. It's it's nicely acted. I thought Jack Weston was pretty good in it. I really like Rita Moreno. That's my favorite couple. They steal the whole and movie. I, and I liked her a lot in it. And I think... Um, Why would you cast Carol Burnett and give her not one funny line? I think that was her. I think she wanted movies that were not the the broad comedy. And from and from what I understand, she like worked really hard to try and figure out how to do that. And most of the roles she took in film tended to be more dramatic. There were, there were exceptions. Obviously, Annie is a giant, broad performance. She but, barely speaks for the first half hour of the movie. I thought, wow. Well, and that to me is the weirdest thing is just not giving her more to do. I don't know if I needed to be comedy, but... Yeah, they do have some They have some good moments. Yes, they do together have some great moments later on where they're, you know, they're, they're kind of looking at their own marriage through the prism of their 
fr- their friend's broken marriage. And I, I did like that the movie paints the young wife as, you know, yes, obviously she's beautiful and has a great body and there are some jokes to that effect, but they make her out to be a real character. She is not just a dumb bimbo. It's a nice performance by Bess Armstrong. And I think she, it, it, the thing that she had to do as an actor there that was so hard is the same thing her character's facing, which is everybody else in that room has infinitely more experience than she does. And you have people that are pros. Alan Alda, this is his hiatus for MASH. This is what he did between seasons. By that point, MASH was a well-oiled machine, and Alda was a big part of that. So I think there was a real professionalism to him, to Carol Burnett, who had done the TV show for so long. Rita Moreno is Rita freaking Moreno. She was just amazing at everything. So those are like real beasts to be thrown in a scene with. And I think Bess Armstrong does really nice work in the movie opposite them. I didn't much care for the way the film like casts off the one wife character and they kind of address it later. But I'm thinking like if this movie was really insightful about a group of six friends who've been friends since college and are now pushing 50 and they've ousted one of their friends and it just seems very. But I don't think they were like the way it's explained at the beginning is that Weston is the dentist and that's how they met. So it's later in life. I think these are adult friends and that's something that I. I got to say, at least I like this about the movie. I like the fact that to me, this feels like a somewhat honest look at people at a certain income class, how things were kind of working. These people aren't rich. Yeah. If you want to knock this movie, there's an easy way to just be like, oh, these poor white people complaining about divorce. But there's some real sincerity to it, which is not just not super rich. They're not. The reason they take vacations is together is so they can afford them. And there's a real nickel and dime quality. The point is when people drift apart, that can be said. Dude, I went through this with, with uh, you know, there are f- there are people that I don't see anymore. There are people that I were part of my life every day or every week for 10 years. And since the end of my marriage, I don't see them at all. And we don't talk. And it's just my wife got those people and I got these people. And I think the movie doesn't do that badly. I just think Sandy Dennis's character, they, d- they didn't really know how to write her. Yeah, she's weird. They make her out to be just weird. And that's not really entirely fair because then we're happy she's gone. But... Uh, One interesting piece of trivia, Alan Alda may have written the very first permutation of the line, are we having fun yet, in this movie. It's a pretty solid picture. It's a solid movie, I agree with you. I will say one thing, there's a couple of moments in the film where where Alda kind of just plants the camera, points it at himself, and tries to do slapstick. Slapstick ain't your cup of tea, Alan. Don't do, like, there's some skiing nonsense that's just, ugh. If we're going to talk about people who are out of their comfort zone, that's a good way to get into our last film for this week. Uh, Richard Pryor, the first film I believe that he ever produced for himself, I'm pretty sure that it was probably pitched as Richard Pryor meets the Bad News Bears in some respect. And the film is called Bustin' Loose. Richard Pryor is Joe Braxton. He's mad. He's bad. I mean, he's really bad. And he's busting loose. Richard Pryor. You And Cicely Tyson in Bustin' Loose. Don't forget it. From Universal Pictures. Try me one time, you understand? Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and, and just acknowledge right up front, Richard Pryor and kids is a terrible idea because it handcuffs Richard Pryor, who is deadly unfunny when you take most of his tools away from him. I, do, I like Bustin' Loose to a degree, 
Ooh, I don't. It's very piecemeal. It feels like it was made over the course of like six years or something because it's like ostensibly it's about a a guy, a a, a 'er ne'er-do-well ex-con who's driving a school bus full of troubled kids. Uh, You know, so it's a road movie, but it just goes off on these weird, weird tangents. I would imagine that somebody somewhere must have thought this was going to actually play a for family audience because every one of these troubled kids gets their heart fixed by Richard Pryor with his no nonsense wisdom as he drives them across the country. It's bullshit, though. The script is ridiculous. And uh, any epiphany that it's written for any character in this film is out of nowhere and motivated simply because they need another scene to get them to the next one. And his chemistry with Cicely Tyson in this film is not just negligible. They look like they cannot stand being in the same space together. And what's weird is that this was clearly intended to be something a little more family friendly for Richard Pryor. And yet it's still rated R. Like, so I guess this is as close as we can get to Richard Pryor being family friendly. You know, Um, I think he does have some decent moments just on his charms alone, maybe not on the screenplay. But I think there are some good moments with him and the kids uh, and some just quick one liners and, and like just banter that made me laugh. Richard Pryor's done much worse movies, so let's put it that way. Man, I, would, I, I, I wish I could agree with you, and I actually, I, I still feel like I was easy on Stir Crazy. I don't think Richard Pryor had a very good film career. I love Richard Pryor deeply. I think he's maybe one of the most important stand-up comics who ever worked. I think in film, nine times out of ten, he was not just wasted. I think it's almost ugly watching how handcuffed and how tame and how toothless and how fake Richard Pryor's movies are. I don't buy anything in this film. And the idea that they hire this criminal to be a bus driver of these kids. And so what you're saying is that things are going to get more interesting when we get to films like Critical Condition and Moving. Maybe it's because I have such respect for him as a stand-up artist. And those albums, I can't say enough good about them. I think they're truly significant pieces of American art. Maybe that's why I hate his movies so much. His film, his track record on film is not so great. Ugh. I guess that's why, to me, Bustin' Loose seems like a relatively minor crime compared to like stuff like uh, Superman 3 or The Toy. But look at that. There's a scene in this movie where he's walking through the rain and the Klan comes up behind him and he ends up getting the Klan to help him move the bus. It's the worst set piece in the movie. And it's so bad because no. That's not how it would go. So why not let Richard Pryor play that scene the way it would go? Why not have Richard Pryor have to get them out of that situation and let him be goddamn Richard Pryor? Why does he have to be this toothless, sitcom bullshit version of Richard Pryor who somehow wins them over and charms them because there's kids with him and bullshit? That's not funny and it's not interesting and it has nothing to say. No, I totally agree with that whole sequence. I mean, it's in the trailer. It's on the poster. Yeah. It was the poster, like it's the image that they sold it on. Oh, look what wackiness will ensue when a wise-ass black man comes across the Klan. If your movie had the stones to go through with that and it kind Do of... Do that, cut- yeah. On that note, uh, let's wrap it up. That was an unbelievable uh, marathon run, and we are really just still getting started because 1981 is a weird year in terms of what there was out there. I think 1982 is going to be an unbelievable run, but next month is... What I would consider so far the single biggest month we have ever had. June of 1981, we're going to see 
people we've already talked about, like Cheech and Chong and Mel Brooks come back. We're going to see that Disney Paramount relationship pay off with a classic. We're going to see the Muppets in action. We are going to get one of the greatest adventure films ever made and one of the greatest sequels of the 80s. It's an unreal month, and that just barely scratches the surface. So, Scott. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers for supporting us. Uh, thank you for anybody who leaves us an iTunes review or anybody who tweets us on Facebook or Facebooks us on Twitter. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Please keep listening. You guys have been absolutely fantastic so far. Peter Boyle's a great piece of shit.